open them up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3 this morning, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10. Jonah 3, 1 through 10. And as you're turning, consider this. At the time, it was the capital city of the world. It was the greatest city that the world knew by reputation, by power, by size. The scripture we're looking at this morning tells us that the city of Nineveh took three days to walk across. From the church office here, you can get to the west end in about 20 minutes, but to walk across the city of Nineveh would take you three days. It was a great city. It was a grand city. It was second to none. And the question we asked this morning is this. How do you spiritually sack a great city like that? How do you minister to this great city? How do you do it? Let's find out. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is God breathed. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. O Spirit, Much like the pipe organ, unless there is a wind, a mighty wind through it, there are no notes, and there is no fruit. And so, Spirit, these are words unless you blow, unless you move, unless you entice our hearts and change them and give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Allow this word to be to us this morning like a fire that consumes, like a hammer that breaks the stone. Allow us to see ourselves as we truly are, O Spirit. Minister to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. No one likes to be interrupted. We all hate interruptions. You've just sat down to dinner, and the telemarketer promises this will just take three minutes. I promise just three minutes. That's a bad interruption. You're already late to work. You're getting ready to cross the train tracks. The lights go off. The arm crosses. The black and white arms cross. And the train is moving slowly by. It's going so slow it could drive Miss Daisy and you're going to be late to work. That's a bad interruption. It's the 3rd of July. Your college neighbors 
are eager because they've purchased fireworks and they decide to celebrate a night early at about 11.45. It's not a good interruption. Nobody likes interruptions. Nobody likes to be stopped in what they're doing. And, and I want to suggest this. We don't like interruptions. We don't like to be stopped in what we're doing because of this. Interruptions are these little reminders that no matter how, how type A, no matter how well thought out, no matter how well prepared we think we are, interruptions are these little flags or these little bells or these little whistles that remind us that no matter how, how type A we are, we don't have control of life. We have no control over interruptions. We don't have control. Little reminders. That's why we don't like them. I want to suggest this morning that there are some interruptions that are good. There are some interruptions that are very good. You know, if you've ever lived in the Midwest or in certain parts of the South, they've they've built these tornado alarms and these tornado sirens that that when a tornado has touched the ground, these these sirens go, go off warning you that whatever you're doing... You can hear these sirens and you can run and you can seek shelter and you can be protected. And if you've ever heard one of these and if you've ever stood next to one of these, you don't hear these sirens, you feel them. They are so loud. That's a good interruption. Some of you have been busting it out since Christmas. You've been working hard. And now your kids are out of school. And your wife's saying, it's time. It's time to be interrupted. And so you've packed up. You've packed a cooler. You've got your umbrella. You've gone. You've stuck your feet in the sand. And you're allowing yourself to be interrupted from work for Sabbath rest. That's a good interruption. This morning we have another good interruption in our passage. The Ninevites are doing life as normal. They're they're conquering one people group at a time. Life is just as it always has been. They are number one. They are sovereign. They are in control until something happens. Nineveh is interrupted. A man smelling like fish comes in. And he gives a five-word sermon in Hebrew. It's eight in English. A simple sermon. He walks in a day's journey and he interrupts life and he says this. Yet 40 days and you will be destroyed. Yet 40 days and you will be destroyed. Yet 40 days and this city will be destroyed. It's one of those events you always look back on and go, I remember where I was when that happened. I remember where I was when that fish milling man came into our city and warned us. Told us that we had 40 days to turn unless destruction were to come upon our city. Forty days. And what happens? The story tells us they allow the interruption. They allow their lives to be interrupted. They listen to this man. From the greatest of them, from the kings and the nobles, to the least of them, to the peasants and to the animals, they repent. They get on their knees. They cry out mightily to God. They seek His face. They allow themselves to be interrupted. They heed the alarms and they heed the sirens. Reminding us of this great truth. And here's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Here's kind of the thesis, um, uh, the thought we'll be, we'll be dwelling on this morning. There is no life without repentance. Just a simple truth. There's no life without repentance. If we don't allow ourselves to be inconveniently interrupted with this message of repentance by God, we very well may forfeit life. Not some good things, not a majority of good things, but life itself. That's what the gospel is. It's a dramatic and a grand and cosmic interruption. And we must let ourselves be interrupted by it, for it's a good one. 
couple things I want us to see this morning in this passage. We're going to be spending the next two weeks on the topic of repentance. Uh, this week, from a bird's eye view, uh, just a few points. And the next week, uh, what, what does repentance actually look like in, in your life? What is, what is fruit of repentance? How does it look? But this week, a bird's eye view. Three things I want us to see. And please forgive the, the prepositions, but I did it for the sake of, of ease this morning for everybody. Um, what is real pr- repentance? You ask, well, real repentance is from God, to God, and by God. Three things. Repentance is from God, to God, and by God. Let's jump in first. Real repentance, genuine repentance, is from God. Look with me at verses 1 and verses 4. And notice as we read this, notice two things. Notice the origin of the message and the manner of the message. Notice where it comes from. And how it's communicated, okay? Two things, verse 1 and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What was that word? Look with me at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, We have a joke on on Paige's side of the family. Paige has a number of, of uncles who are um, who are farmers in Florida, and they grow oranges. And, and I've been around enough and, and done life enough with them that I've actually picked up on this joke. They've said it several times. And here's the joke. Here's the jest. They say this. If you want a fruit that looks good, if you want an orange that looks good, that on the outside is pristine, buy it from the West Coast. Buy it from the West Coast. But he says, and, and apologies to anybody here from the West Coast. I'm, I'm not knocking to you, just your oranges. Okay. If you want a fruit that looks good, buy it from the West Coast. But if you want a real orange... If you want an orange that's not an ornament, but if you really enjoy the taste of orange, if you want a real orange, if you want a good orange, you buy Florida. If you want one that looks good, buy West Coast. If you want a real orange, one that is designed to do what it's supposed to do, be sweet, be tender, be juicy, buy Florida. It reminds us of this key point. Origin is everything. Where this message of repentance comes from is everything. See, friends, we're, we're tempted to think that if we're not careful, we can have a West Coast style of repentance. We can, we can alter and mess with, with oranges, or our, our repentance, and think that we can actually create it in and of ourselves. And what this passage reminding us is, is this, is that true, authentic, real repentance as it was created and ordained by God is from God. Real repentance is Florida repentance. And we see that in verse 1. Remember, it's Jonah's words, yes. It is his vocal cords speaking in Nineveh, yes. It is his body that actually goes a day into Nineveh and begins preaching. But whose message is it? Who arouses this repentance in Nineveh? Is it Jonah? No. And he tried to stop it, didn't he? No, it's from God. Real repentance is from God. But notice this. Notice the method in which it comes. It comes in the form of words, and not just ordinary words. These words are devastating. Are they not? Jonah doesn't come in with this namby-pamby, sort of you know, sugar-coated message of, of, of well-wishing and, and, and gird yourself by, by your spiritual loins and everything will be okay. No, it's a very simple message. Forty days, and you will be destroyed. What does he mean, destroyed? He means this. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened. Their wickedness also came before the Lord, and he wiped it off the face of the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't just fall in on itself. Archaeologists have been able to find 
um, evidence of, of cultures dating back you know, to uh, the beginning of time. But you know what? Archaeologists can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. It is gone. It is destroyed. And this is the word. This is the method. This is this devastating word of God that comes to Nineveh. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, you too will be destroyed. Forty days. It's a devastating word. This is why Jeremiah uh, accounts for us what God says about his word in chapter 23. This is what the Lord says. He says, is my word not like a fire that consumes? And is my word not like a hammer that dashes the rock to pieces? Friends, real repentance comes from God. Its origins are in heaven. It's aroused by heaven. It's aroused by God. But it comes in the form of a devastating word. No unicorns and rainbows here. No destruction. Destruction. 40 days destruction. But they repent. They listen. They turn. They heed these destructive words. They heed this voice from heaven. And friends, I want to apply this to us before we move on. What does this mean for us? And it's this. Some of us don't like to be interrupted. Some of us are completely happy where we are and what we're doing. And we don't want to change. And if the gospel is an interruption, we want nothing to do with it. And if that's where we are this morning, and if you struggle with that, here's how to keep from getting interrupted. Here's how to keep the gospel from interrupting your life, from being that hammer, from being that fire. Carry a fire extinguisher and never place yourself under the hammer. How do you avoid being interrupted? Stop coming. Now, do I think there's magic in the, in the mortar and bricks of this building? No. Is there some sort of spiritual magical force field around this church? No. But what do we do? What do we do every Sunday? What is the pinnacle? What is the peak of our activity on Sunday morning? Is it not the reading and the studying of God's Word? A Word of God? Not from man, but from heaven? Is not not the pinnacle of what we do here? And is that not its intent? Is it to take our hearts of stone and then smash them to pieces? Consume us like a fire. Interrupt us and interrupt our lives. And the easiest way to avoid that is to not place yourself underneath the Word. Stop coming. Find a really good reason. And there's a whole lot of reasons not to come. Find a really good reason not to place yourself underneath the preached and taught Word of God. If you don't want to be interrupted, take yourself out from underneath the hammer. Stop studying Scripture. Stop meditating on Scripture. Find a really, really good reason to quit reading. I've done them. (laughs) Haven't you? I went to Pillow Pres in college. I did that a number of times. Find a reason not to be here. Find a reason to stop reading Scriptures, and you won't be interrupted. You won't be interrupted. But if you're not interrupted, you won't repent. You won't turn back to God. And if you won't repent and turn back to God, you forfeit life. It comes with a great warning, and it comes with a great cost. Second point this morning is repentance is not only from God. It's not just this devastating word from heaven, but it's to God. Repentance is to God. Look with me at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Notice, notice the ends of repentance. Notice 
You know, some of us have appliances that when their cycle is done, they'll either sing a little tune or buzz or there's a little ding that goes off that lets you know the cycle is done. How do you know the cycle of repentance has come to completion in your life? How do you know that it is over and that it is done and that you have done it thoroughly and not partially? Where's the spiritual ding that goes off in our heart? It's when we've turned to the Lord. You see, friends, this is where I feel like I and where you and all of us need to be corrected. So oftentimes we feel like the ding in our spiritual life when we're, when we're done repenting is when we've stopped from a particular sin. In other words, if I can just keep from doing this, and if I've, done, if I've stopped from doing whatever this particular thing is, if I've stopped worrying, if I've stopped being angry, ah, that's a fallacy. Just as, as there is such thing as, as a man-made repentance, that's a false repentance, that's a West Coast repentance, there is such a thing as a partial repentance. And yes, stopping from a particular sin is important, but it's not the end. That's not the spiritual ding. When we return to the Lord, that's when the cycle's done. Let me illustrate it for you. You remember the story, and, and most of us remember the, know this story whether we were raised in the church or not. It's a very popular story. It's the story of the, of the prodigal son. He takes his father's money, and he rebels, and he goes and he spends it on, on prostitutes. He spends it on friends. He throws it away. And, and allow me a little creative liberty here, and, and I want to give a, a false ending to the story. But here's how we sometimes are tempted to think that um, real repentance ends. Um, the son comes to his senses about halfway through his finances. Okay, this is not true. This is not in Scripture, just so you know. The son, you know... He gets about halfway through um, his finances and he realizes, this is wrong. I'm doing something wrong here. I'm going to write a letter. Dear Father, what I am doing, I realize now, is wrong and I'm going to stop. And I've actually stopped for a week. I've actually put my money back in the bank to where I'm protected from it. Um, no more nightlife. Uh, no more boogieing at night. We're, we're done, I'm done with that whole scene. Um, I've, I've, I've stopped. And Dad, I just wanted you to know if you were a parent, would, would you just go, oh, he's got it? No, you wouldn't, would you? Why? Because we know the nature of sin. We know how strong it is. And we know how destructive it is. And that's not how the story goes. What does the son do? He spends it all. And he's ear deep in pig slop going, what am I doing? What am I doing? I need to stop this. But not only do I need to stop this, what am I going to do? I'm going to go home. I'm turning around. I'm going back to the Father. And friends, that's what real repentance is. It's not stopping from what you're doing. It's a return to the Father. What do I mean? Typically we think on this, on this road of life, you know, if I could compare it to like a car trip, a road trip, um, we're moving in this direction and God is behind us. Scripture says that there's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who's righteous. And we think repentance is the stop sign. We think it's the exit sign. Just get off. You're on the wrong road. Get off. Stop what you're doing. And it's not. It's the U-turn. Real repentance is to God. It's the U-turn. You need to turn around and you need a different vehicle, actually. You need to get out of that car. It's the U-turn. It goes back to God. It's not, Lord, I'm going to stop worrying. Lord, I'm going to stop being anxious. Lord, I'm going to stop being angry. It's, Lord, I need you. You have promised that not a hair from my, can fall from my head without you knowing it, and that you have promised my good. I need to believe that more than I believe anything else. I am fleeing to you. And, and notice what the, uh, what the Ninevites are here doing. They're embodying this for us. They're not, they, don't, they don't tell Jonah, hey, tell your God, you know, he's right. He nailed it. We're, we're a wicked generation. Just tell him we're going to stop. 
We're done. You're right. What do they do? Look with me again. Verse 8, and look at it with, with new eyes. And this is, comes from the king, the king of Nineveh. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. This, uh, this word mightily can also be translated violently. Let him call violently out of God. What was Nineveh known for at this time? They were known for their violence against the nations, the atrocities they would do to people that they occupied. And now what the king says is, that same passion, that same vigor, that same violence, that needs to be directed towards the Lord. I'm going to call to him violently. My nobles are going to call to him violently. You're going to call to him violently. The sheep, the livestock are going to call to him violently. It's all or nothing. We're going to God. We're not just going to stop what we're doing, but we're going to, we're going to plead to the Lord. And as the Puritan said, we're going to sue God for mercy. Friends, don't make the mistake of thinking that repentance is a stop sign. It's a U-turn. It's to turn completely around. It's not just to stop from what you're doing, but it's a return to the Lord. It's a return to a person. It's a restoration of a relationship. It's trust in a father. It's the clay returning to the potter. That's real repentance. It's to God. But not only that, it's also by God. It's from God. It's from heaven. It's to God. And it's by God. Okay, what do I mean that it's by God? What's this? It's what God requires of you. He's going to provide. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. And remember again, this is the king of Nineveh speaking. He says, but, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? Now God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, we're, we're at a point where we're at a fork in the road. Um, and some of us, when we hear this, um, this, this devastating word of God, this devastating activity of God, the severe word of God of, in 40 days, you will be wiped out. There will be no more history. They won't know who you are. You'll be wiped out from the history books. And we kind of bristle and just kind of go, see? That's what I'm talking about. The, the God of the Old Testament is a really angry God. And he uses scare tactics. The only reason why they did it is because they were in fear of their life. And we're at a fork in the road, and we can kind of go down that path and, 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 and think that's what the Old Testament's communicating, but I want to suggest that's not what this passage is preaching. That's not what the king of Nineveh assumed. What is eclipsed here, this, this severity of God, is eclipsed uh, by God's grace and by God's kindness. And you say, where? Where is it? I say, in the 40 days. You see, God is just. He is righteous, and He has every right to come into Nineveh and say, Done. End. No 40 days, nothing. It's over. Lightning, fire, sulfur, done. But God does not delight in destruction. God does not delight in death. The scriptures say that from the beginning to the end. And what God wants more than anything here is to not to see Nineveh perish, but see Nineveh restored. And say, so you've got 40 days. Repent. Turn back to me. I don't want to see your destruction. I don't want to see you wiped from the face of the earth. I want you. And Nineveh believes this, and the king believes it. And what do they do? They repent. 
There's no parting here. There's no 40 days of eat, drink, and be merry because all we have left is 40 days. We are without hope. No, they're not without hope. You're following the logic of the king here? It's a little subtle. He's going, wait a minute. If he was going to destroy us, he would have done it already. We've got 40 days. We better capitalize on this grace quick. This is all or nothing. Everybody, man, noble, peasant, sheep, livestock, we are all going to repent. It's severe, though, isn't it? It's severe, isn't it? I want to suggest this this morning, that if, if this is still this concept, this idea is hard to swallow, 40 days and you will be destroyed. If this is hard to, to wrestle with, if this is hard to imbibe, we're going to have a hard time understanding and, and believing and, and trusting in the gospel as a whole. If we have a hard time with Jonah, I want to suggest this morning that we're going to have a hard time with the rest of Scripture. Here's why. This is not the first time a prophet from Galilee has arisen, gone to a nation, preached it a message of repentance, saying, turn, 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 turn back to the Father because destruction is coming. This is not the first time that's happened. Remember Jesus. Jesus, too, was from Galilee. And He came to this world. He came to this earth. Not a nation, but the world. And His message, too, was the message of repentance. Now, consider this. Jonah's from Gath Heifer. Second Kings tells us just a little bit of commentary about Jonah. He's from Gath Heifer, which is a region of Galilee. It's just a small little piece of commentary that we often overlook uh, in the Old Testament. And then he was sent to a foreign city to preach this gospel of repentance. Jesus is from Nazareth. Gath Heifer and Nazareth are about three miles away from each other. If they were born at the same time, if they were raised at the same time, they would have been neighbors. Now, why is this important? I want to... I want to tell you a story about an episode in John chapter 7. Here's why that, that fact is important. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, all, all the leaders um, at the time are, are drawing lines. Jesus has begun his public ministry. Some people are saying, he is who he says he is. And other people are going, no, he's not. He's not who he says he is. And there's people in the middle going, we don't know where to go. People are divided and beginning to place themselves in, in, in different camps. And one man heeded this alarm. One man allowed himself to be interrupted by this gospel message of Jesus, this message to repent. His name was Nicodemus. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. And he and the chief officials are standing before the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees are going, we don't buy it. We don't think he is who he says he is. And Nicodemus says this, he says... Let's not judge until we give the man a fair trial. We need to hear him out. And you remember what they say to Nicodemus? You're a fool. See, search the scriptures and see, and see that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. See that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. Nobody has ever come from that region and preached the message of repentance. Oops. They missed it. Not only was there one, but there's two. Jonah, Gath Heifer, a Galilean, came and preached to Nineveh a message of repentance. Allow yourself to be interrupted. Turn. Flee to God. And now Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. And His message too is a message of repentance. And let me just briefly illustrate it for you. In the New Testament, the Gospels begin and Revelation ends with the challenge, the push, the admonition to repent. Remember, in the beginning of the Gospels, John's baptism is a baptism of what? It's a baptism of of repentance. And to all the churches, Sardis, all the seven churches in Revelation, John says, you must repent. 
you must repent, you must repent. Either explicitly or implicitly to all the churches in Revelation, the New Testament is bookended with this challenge, repent. Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1. What does he do? He goes to Galilee and he says this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul experiences it. Paul repents. He flees to Christ. Peter, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, 3 and 8, he preaches a message to the young churches, a message of repentance. That's how we're going to start this thing. We're going to start it with repentance. Friends, don't think for a moment that this concept of repentance is a peripheral idea of Scripture. It is the idea of Scripture. It is more prevalent than the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? And we all know how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Repentance appears more often than the theme of the resurrection does. Repent. Turn from God. And He will hear you. Friends, if this concept of interruption and and God's severity bristles you, consider this. Nineveh had 40 days. They had a deadline. And we'll talk about this more next week, but those 40 days were probably the most stressful 40 days in their life. Imagine night 39, the day before day 40. Is it enough? Have we repented? Has it been real? Has the ding gone off? Have we sought the Lord? And what do scriptures tell us? Not only do they repent, but Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, I've brought this passage up many times. Listen. This is Jesus talking to the wicked and adulterous generation. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Nineveh repents. Nineveh is reconciled to God. Nineveh gets God back. And just like Nineveh, friends, and just like Jesus, we have a spiritual 40 days. We have two advents of Jesus. Jesus has come in the Gospels as a servant. He has come as a slave. He has come as a lowly child to save us from our sins and be our sacrifice. But Scripture tells of Jesus' second coming. There are two, not just one, but two. And this time He's not coming as a servant. This This time He's not coming meek and mild in the form of a child. Listen to how He comes. And this is, this is Jesus speaking in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed with fine linen, white and pure, were following him, On white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, the kings and the nobles of Nineveh had 40 days. You and I have grace too. If God were to be just, and if you were to be right, We wouldn't have a second chance. We wouldn't have the second coming of Jesus then. It's coming. We don't know when. We don't know how many days. But it would become to judge. And by then it will be too late. And until then, He's given us grace of time to pursue the Lord, to be reconciled with the Lord, to be honest with ourselves, to allow ourselves to be interrupted. And friends, I know this is sobering.
But if we do not allow ourselves to be interrupted, if we do not allow the gospel to interrupt our lives, not stop it, not give us an exit ramp, but get off the road and make a U-turn to God, we will forfeit life itself. And God wants nothing more than to be restored to you. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants us to be reconciled with Him. Is that not warm? Does that not eclipse God's severity that God would want to be with us and that God would want to provide His Son so that we might be restored? Friends, I entreat you, allow yourself to be interrupted. Repent. Do it not and we forfeit life. Let's pray. Spirit, we want to go big here. For we have left ourselves to man-made repentance more often than we would care to admit. And we need real repentance. We need, a, we need a voice from heaven. Not the voice of a man. But we need the voice of God to come in and remind us that we are due the wrath of God. And Father, allow us not to stop or exit this road of, of destruction, but remind us, carry us, lift us, carry us in the shadow of your Son's wings so that we might be fully restored to you. For there is our true rest, and there is our true hope and peace. Enable us to that end. In your name and for your kingdom's sake we pray. Amen.